There you are. I knew you'd come, fellow humans. At least, I hoped you would. The wind blows its tumultuous way across the hills and through the trees, bringing with it morose, melancholy moods. Another dark night. The clouds are gathering and it's nearly that time. We have tales to unpack as well as stories and mysteries to unfold and peruse. Time for another episode of ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. I am your humble host, The Guru, and I am so pleased you have decided to spend your precious time with me and share my fire while we kindle the bones of a few tales of old. If this is your first time around, I welcome you to come sit by my fire, huddle close as the clouds gather and the cold presses in on us. Out here, anything could be watching, and probably is. As usual, we will be deciphering the enigmas of the past, sometimes the recent past, sometimes the not-so-recent, and we speculate on who could commit such bloody atrocities. Who were the unfortunate victims of weapons and wrath? For us, well, I'm afraid we don't get many clear answers. Many times, though, the answers may be hidden between the lines and one must squint to be able to see the trees for the forest. These are the tales of unresolved past, tales that must never be forgotten by the waking world or the sleeping. Today's episode is number 20 and today's case involves the death of a priest and a member of the church choir and an affair between the two. Why, Gru, you gelatinous Gru factory, are you bringing us a case with a juicy love affair in it? Indeed I am, fellow humans. This case was considered a media circus. Basically, they gave way too much coverage to these murderers all over the USA. So you may have heard of this one. So, ready to share some creepy, callous, and complex tales? A recital of real records? The enunciating announcement of academic anecdotes? Yeah? Well then, grab a tasty beverage of your choice and gather around my fire as we discuss the Hall Mills murder. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include descriptions of dead bodies in a crime scene and mentions about cheating. Listener discretion is therefore advised. So, let's talk about the victims, as we need to understand all the information that we can obtain. First, we have Eleanor Reinhardt Mills. Born 1888, she was a choir singer who was married to James E. Mills. Both of them lived at 49 Carmen Street in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Her husband was acting sexton, a type of caretaker at a church. Yes, I had to look that up. At St. John, the Evangelist Episcopal Church, and full-time janitor at the Lord Sterling Elementary School. Both lived in New Brunswick, and both of them had two children, Charlotte E. Mills and Daniel Mills. The small family was buried in Van Loo Cemetery in North Brunswick. The second victim was Edward Wheeler Hall, born 1881, an Episcopal priest. He was married to Francis Noel Stevens, who he married July 20, 1911. He spent his childhood in Brooklyn and received his theological degree in Manhattan. 
After obtaining his degree, he moved to Basking Ridge in New Jersey and later went to St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church in New Brunswick. At the time of his death, he was living at 23 Nickel Avenue in New Brunswick. He was buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, the city in which he was raised. It was a warm day of mid-September, precisely the 16th, 1922, and a faithful day in which the bodies of these two people were discovered. They had been disposed of in a field near a farm in Somerset County, New Jersey, a city not too far away from the one both of them lived in. Both victims were on their backs, their heads shot with a 32 caliber pistol. Hall had only one bullet wound, with the bullet entering through his right ear and escaping his body through the back of his neck. Mills had been shot three times, once under the eye, once over her right temple, and then over the right ear. It seemed like the culprit didn't like the right side of her face. Plus, a police officer noticed that the woman's throat had been severed and maggots were already crawling around on her wound, which indicated that the death had been at least one day before the bodies were found, maybe even two. The bodies seemed to be placed side by side after dying, and their feet pointed towards an apple tree. Hall had a hat covering his face, with his calling card positioned at his feet. There were many torn up love letters between the two victims, possibly the ones they used to send to each other. Well, the church had already expected that something was up between these two. Here's what a couple of the letters said. Sweetheart, my true heart, I know there are girls with more shapely bodies, but I'm not caring what they have. I have the greatest part of all blessings, a nobleman's deep, true, eternal love. How impatient I am and will be. I want to look up into your dear face for hours as you touch my body close. This one was written by Mills. What a romantic lady she was. And here is what Hall said. It's unclear if it's in response to the first letter or not, though. Darling Wonderheart, I just want to crush you for two hours. I want to see you Friday night alone by our road, where we can let out unrestrained the universe of love and happiness that we call ours. He signed it DTL, short for Diener Truer Lieberhauer, or Thy True Lover in German. Hmm. Both of them were romantic, and Hall, it would seem, was bilingual. There was a bureaucracy problem in the investigation which slowed everything down. As the crime scene was pretty much on the border between Somerset County and Middlesex County, a jurisdictional issue arose when it was time for the first investigation. Police from New Brunswick, which is part of Middlesex County, arrived first, yet the actual crime scene was in Franklin Township, which, as you might have guessed, is in Somerset County. As authorities discussed the confusion, people entered the scene without suffering any kind of repercussions. They took things from the scene and passed Hall's calling card among the crowd. And so, the physical evidence was quickly and severely compromised. Finding the culprit was now an even harder task than if the scene had been secured. Mills was wearing a blue dress with red polka dots, brown shoes, and black silk stockings. Near her body, a blue velvet hat was found, and she had a brown scarf wrapped around her throat. There was a tiny cut on her lip, and her arm had a bruise. Her left hand was positioned in such a way that it was touching Hall's right thigh. An autopsy showed that her tongue and larynx had been removed. Hall's had his right arm positioned in a way that it was touching Mills's neck, with the hat covering his face, hiding the only shot he had received. He was wearing a pair of glasses, too. 
There also was a small bruise at the tip of his ear with abrasions surrounding his left pinky finger and right index finger. He had a wound about five inches below the kneecap of his right leg. Although his gold watch was missing, he still had coins in one of his pockets. Authorities believed that the case would be solved in a few days, but two months passed and there was no clue as to the culprit's identity. A grand jury was convened in November, but there was no indictment after five days, and soon Mrs. Hall went on a trip to Europe. Authorities didn't need to investigate much to find four suspects. Hall's wife, Frances Noel Stevens, and her brothers Henry Hugill Stevens, William Carpenter Stevens, and one of her cousins, Henry de la Bruyere Carpenter. However, the original investigation made by Joseph E. Stricker had no accusations at all, so the case went cold for a couple of years. We can't ignore the power the press had, the strength to spread rumors and fake things about this or any case. For context, the New York Daily News became America's first tabloid in 1919, followed quickly by the New York Graphic and the New York Daily Mirror five years later. And the news were hungry for interesting tales to tell, and it was said that people mostly wanted to hear about love, sex, money, and murder. The Hall Mills fit this standard, so of course the press would circle it like a predator to a prey. And thanks to all the pressure, a trial was held in 1926. Absolutely everyone was talking about these murders back in the 20s. The New York Daily Mirror dug up some evidence on the case, and an interesting headline appeared July 16, 1926, saying, Hall Mills Murder Mystery Baird. And then even more and more changes appeared on the tabloid, like Hall's Bribery Revealed, Mrs. Hall's Spies Held Town in Terror, and How Hidden Hand Balked Hall Murder Justice. I wonder if I can get this guy to write for me. <laughs> Just kidding now. Anyway. Speculation from the media arose thanks to what an associate of one of Mrs. Hall's housekeepers led Governor A. Harry Moore to order a second investigation and later a trial in 1926. In this trial, Harry Carpenter asked to be tried separately from the other suspects, even if he was never tried in the end. The trial began November 3, 1926 at the Somerset County Courthouse in Somerville, and the judges were Charles W. Parker, Frank Cleary, and Raymond C. Stryker as the foreman of the jury. The prosecutor was Alexander Simpson, and the defense attorneys were Robert H. McCarter and Timothy N. Pfeiffer. The testifying fingerprint expert was Joseph A. Farrow. The trial lasted almost an entire month and gathered a lot of attention countrywide because of how wealthy the Stevens and the Carpenter families were. The prosecution's key witness was known as the Pig Woman by the media because she raised hogs, although her name was Jane Gibson, a pig farmer that owned the property in which the victims were found. The defense treated her very poorly, portraying her as stupid and crazy in an attempt to ruin her credibility. Her account varied at different times when she talked to the police with newspapers and then at the trial in which she testified from a hospital bed. Jane Gibson lived at an old barn with her son William, just off of DeRussi's Lane. She told authorities that her dog was barking at about 9 p.m. when the crime occurred, and so she went outside of her home to see what happened. There, in the middle of the night, an unknown man was standing in her cornfield. Gibson decided to ride her mule towards Easton Avenue and approach the stranger. When she got closer, she soon saw four people standing near an apple tree, and then gunshots to which one of the figures fell to the ground. 
Gibson heard a woman screaming, don't, three times, and shows this as an opportune time to turn her mule around and go back to her barn, just to hear more gunshots. And a second person fell to the ground. She testified having heard a woman shout, Henry, but again, her account kept shifting, so not many people paid her much mind. After the trial, Mrs. Howell brought a defamation lawsuit against the New York Daily Mirror, which was settled out of court for a good amount of money. The New York Times were actually more voluminous, but less slanted than reality. This case inspired many books due to the situation between the victims and the obvious lack of a clear culprit. Mrs. Hall and her brother were acquitted, even if they had means and motive to commit the murders, but there was not enough evidence to send them to jail, so they were declared innocent. So let's talk about the suspects in the case. First, we have Henry de la Boye Carpenter, son of Nielsen Carpenter and Anna Nielsen Kemp. He lived in New Brunswick with his wife, Mary Nielsen, precisely at the corner of Sodium Street and Nicole Avenue. He was a cousin of Hall's wife and their brothers. Their mother was a carpenter, after all. Henry worked as a Wall Street stockbroker, and he was an initial suspect, yet never was brought to trial. He died May 26, 1934, and was buried in Elmwood Cemetery in North Brunswick. Now, we have Hall's wife herself, Frances. Her parents were Frances Kirby Stevens and Mary Noel Carpenter. She had a good motive, and the prosecution claimed that she instigated the murder of her husband after finding out that he was cheating on her. She was buried December 21, 1942, in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York with her husband. Her home was bought by Rutgers University just to be used as a residence of the Dean of Douglas Residential College. This lady was related to a considerable number of wealthy families of New Brunswick, like the Carpenters, Nielsens, and there's a possibility that she was related to the Johnsons of Johnson & Johnson. It's good to be connected. Now, let's talk about Henry Hugill Stevens. He was married to Ethel Griffin, and he used to be an exhibition marksman until he retired. He used to live in Levant, New Jersey, and the prosecution reached the conclusion that he had fired the shots. Henry testified that he was fishing miles away from the murder on the night of the killing, and three witnesses corroborated his testimony. He died of a heart attack December 3, 1939, in the city where he lived. Our last suspect of the night is William Willie Carpenter Stevens, who coincidentally owned a 32 caliber pistol just like the one used in the murders. But the firing mechanism had been allegedly filed down to prevent accidents, so it wouldn't have been able to fire any shots. The prosecution said that he had provided the murder weapon and that the calling card found at the crime scene had his fingerprints on it. Willie gave a credible and sympathetic testimony, being a charismatic individual that the witnesses grew fond of. He wasn't able to hold any kind of job, mostly spending his days at a local firehouse. His personality was consistent with autism, but... This was the early 40s. Autism was just being discussed and wouldn't be given proper treatment for years to come. Willie died December 30th, 1942. And this is where the trail goes cold. There doesn't seem to be any newer information about this case. A dead end, if you will. But who knows? Maybe the culprit was one of the suspects or someone we don't even know about. What do you think, fellow humans? Ah, look at that. Our fire is dying and the cold is finding its way in. You know what that means, eh, fellow humans? 
It means you must go your way. Only for now, though. I will be back again with more effervescent, exhilarating, eclectic enunciations for your ear holes. Tales told of tragic times. More unsolved mysteries, in other words. And while I might not always be on time with these tales, I can promise I will always eventually be here until my last tale is told. But there are many tales, fellow humans, untold tales, and victims who never had the chance to tell theirs. We will be their voices, fellow humans, and they will speak in our silence. You can usually find me here, 6 a.m. Eastern on Mondays. Sometimes, though, as with this episode, life gets in the way. But wait, just a moment longer. Do you know about any other terrific, thrilling, tragic tales that you'd be interested in hearing about? Stories that make you feel nervous, nauseous, or even nonchalant? Consider letting me know with a comment in any of my socials, like my YouTube or my personal website. Remember to hit that bell to not miss any new content from my channel. That was episode 20 of ASM Murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website at murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. You can find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I'll leave links in the description. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd love to hear your thoughts or read your comments anyway. Thank you for lending me your time. Time is a precious gift and we must never squander it. May yours be filled with love and light. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves, be good to each other. Take care. This is your friendly neighborhood, Gru, signing off. <laughs>